0: Hello, welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja and I'm just taking a few moments to let you know that this is from one of my online classes and I've decided to edit them so that more people can benefit from these lectures that I deliver pretty much every week. So enjoy and let me know what you think about it. Thank you so much. We have already dealt with one person from the Caribbean, actually from Martinique, and that is Franz Fanon. Now, Césaire was his senior, and Césaire was also a prominent member of the Negritude movement, which was launched in France in the 1950s. These were intellectuals from Africa as well as from the Caribbean, and they actually had a journal that published works by scholars of African origin and the Negritude movement called itself a cultural movement which wanted to promote African cultures and African ways of looking at the world. So Césaire also was very prominent in Martinique because when he returns back to Martinique, he eventually becomes the educational minister and uh, also famous for a book called on colonialism which is a brief pamphlet but highly cited called discourse on colonialism it's his take on imperialism and colonialism now in order to understand the excerpt act three of the Tempest that is in your reader of course you have to know of the original play by shakespeare called The Tempest. A lot of scholars believe that The Tempest was one of the last plays of Shakespeare, especially traditional Shakespeare scholars. And there is also historical evidence that he had based the story on uh, a historical shipwreck in the Caribbean, wreck in which people were left stranded on an island and were eventually rescued. The main character in the play is Prospero who is the ousted duke of Milan, Italy, right? And he had been ousted by his brother and he escapes to this island along with his daughter, who was then really young, Miranda. So these are the two European characters on an island. And then and uh, Prospero is also a wizard. He has a book and knows all the magic spells, so he's a powerful wizard that's his character. Then there are two characters on the island that serve him. Okay, One is Caliban. Caliban is the native inhabitant of the island. His mother, Sycorax, used to rule the island. She was a witch, and she's the one who is banished by Prospero, and then he enslaves Caliban. And then a second person who serves Prospero's. his name is Ariel who is also a magical figure. Ariel was someone that Caliban's mother, Sycorax, had encased in the trunk of a tree, and Prospero frees him, and in return, Ariel offers his services to Prospero. These are the two characters, Caliban, who serves Prospero, but only under the threat of violence, He's constantly trying to rebel against Prospero. He's constantly trying to erode Prospero's authority and claims that the island is his through rights of inheritance. And Ariel, who serves Prospero and does his bidding in return for a promise that Prospero has said that when he leaves, he will free Ariel. And then a lot happens, another ship wrecks on the island and all the people somehow from Milan end up there and there's a wedding between Miranda and one of the princes who comes and eventually Prospero you know finally leaves the island and there is a lost uh, scene there which pe- a lot of people associate with Shakespeare because Prospero at the end of the play breaks his staff and destroys his magic and returns back to Milan Now, when you read Chinwezu, you will realize that this knowledge about Ariel and Caliban is really interesting in post-colonial studies, because they also offer two kinds of human subjectivities that emerge under colonialism. And so if you read Prospero as colonialism personified, there is one native subject, Kaliban, who is represented as animalistic who is represented as less than human, but who constantly keeps challenging Prospero, never buys into his authority. And then there is this other figure, also native of the island, with magical powers, who renders his services willingly to Prospero in his project, in return that he will one day be freed. So these are also two kinds of human subjectivities that develop under colonialism. So a lot of post-colonialists read what happens in the colony through a reference to these characters. And that's why The Tempest is considered a very important play in post-colonial studies. Cool. So what do you think about the idea of power? Because I know it was a huge idea of The Tempest. Yes, I mean, who holds power? We are led to believe that Prospero is all-powerful. But how does he become powerful? Through his instrument, which is Ariel, who basically does his bidding. All the magic that we see happening is when Prospero asks Ariel, do this. And Ariel does that, right? When Prospero asks Ariel to punish Caliban, Ariel does that. So in so many ways, Ariel probably is more powerful a figure than Prospero because he's a magical being. But his loyalties are with Prospero. So you you can extrapolate from that the kind of development, let's say in India, Nigeria, Kenya, the kind of system that the colonizers develop. I have a question. Does this signify that the advisors under a king actually hold the true power? Well, yes and no. They they may not hold the true power in a kingship because the power does come from the divine right to rule, but they have more of an impact on the people, right? Sometimes they are trying to anticipate what the king wants. So their power more directly impacts people's lives. In Chinwezu, what role does Ferdinand play or the shipwrecked crew while well, there isn't much, not Chinwezu, Caesar's play. The play mostly focuses on Prospero and Caliban, and with a little bit of role, it's a rewriting. And so the part you read, we have only two characters. We have Caliban and we have Prospero. And if you read it carefully, Caliban is still youthful, running around in the jungle, singing, but as you read the dialogue of Prospero, first of all, we learn that he never goes back. He never leaves the island. He's still there. But he's now speaking like as if he has lost his memory. He doesn't make any sense, so he is senile. But he's still there. So the juxtaposition is of a vigorous Caliban running around, still youthful, still about freedom, and a senile prospero who just sits outside his cave and doesn't do much. And that is in a way a reversal, because if you look at the dialogue given to Caliban in the original play, I mean, a lot of it makes sense, but a lot of it is also just gibberish, right? Which he makes up and talks about. So that's the reversal. So if you wanted to talk about Caesar's rewriting of The Tempest and the original Tempest by Shakespeare, you could basically focus on how does he rewrite Prospero? And then symbolically, what can we extrapolate from that? So if Prospero is the figure of the colonizer, what we are learning is that the colonizers never really leave. And what does that mean? That even if they physically leave, they still have influence in the former colonies. They have economic power. They have military power, indirect control. And in so many ways, then they stay. Also, if you read Ariel, which Chinwezu, what Chinwezu does is, in his essay that he's talked about, his. the first chapter in, in his book is called Ariels and Kalibans. So what Chinwezu suggests through his work is that the colonizers created two kinds of native subjectivities. The aerials were the middle-class bourgeois who bought into the Western ways and became part of the system. And then the Calibans, the natives who kept out, who were kept outside of that promise. And when these nations get their independence, it's the aerials who inherit the countries. And they are, in a way, a continuation of the policy of the colonizers. And Chinwezu's argument is, is that the only way Africa can be really free is if the rule of Ariel is replaced by the power of Kaliban. But that's the kind of binary structure that Chinwezu sets up. Yes. So the... In Cesare's play, before Prospero was old, it seemed like Prospero chose to stay on the island for white man's burden reasons to civilize. Yes, yeah. So he cannot give up on his mission because he has internalized that it is his project to civilize the Caliban. And remember, this was the argument practically offered. In a lot of colonial situations, if you look at British colonization of India, people like the imperialists, like Rudyard Kipling and others, uh, their argument was that we should not, we should wait because the Indians are not ready to govern themselves. So we should stay longer until they are ready. So that is not just a story. That was the argument that was used, that was offered. And you have seen it in your own lifetime. I mean, American involvement in Iraq, you know, American troops and whatever. The argument was the same. Oh, Iraqis are not ready to take care of themselves. We have to stay and teach them how to be democratic. This argument flares up and is mobilized every now and then. So going over to Chenwei Zhu, that's where I will stop today. Now Wei Zhu is originally from Nigeria. Got his early education there, but then he came to the United States in the 50s and 60s. And he got heavily influenced by the Black Power Movement and the Black Rights Civil Rights Movement. He, he was here in New York area at that time. And then he went to study at uh, SUNY Buffalo. State University of New York, Buffalo. And that's where he was getting his degree. And he kept having these differences of opinion with his, uh, you know, mentors and his dissertation directors. He had two dissertation directors. So finally, he goes to his defense. And I don't know how much of this story is true, but it's always told. And he goes to his defense. He has a disagreement. So he picks up his dissertation and walks out of there without defending it. And then he goes and publishes it, and it becomes an international bestseller, his first book. So a year later, he he takes a copy of the book and goes back to Buffalo and gives them the book and asks for his PhD, and they give him his PhD. That's his story. And Chinwezu, if you look at the people that we are reading, we have Angugi Chango, we have... Chinweizu, Cesare, Fanon, and then we have Chinua Chebe. Now, most of them ha- are people of African descent or people from Africa. Now do keep in mind, Africa is not a monolithic place. So in African literary studies and African cultural studies, there are different groups. So in times of Fanon, there was the main distinction was the Negritude movement which was slightly culturalist, but they wanted a United States of Africa. Their vision was larger. So, Senor and Leopard Sedar and Cesar were members of it. Now, Senor goes and becomes the first president of Senegal. And then there were people like Fanon and others who said, no, we first need to work on national consciousness. After we have nations, then we can develop an international union of Africa. Similarly, in literary studies, there is one major school led by Chinua Achebe, who believed that the languages that colonizers left us, you know, they are sort of a gift, and that we need to produce literature in those languages and tell our stories. But the other school of thought are people like Chinwezu and Ngugi Tiango, whom we will read, right? These are people who believe that, look, the biggest loss in African cultures because of colonialism was the loss of language. And the reason is that most African cultures did not have a written script. So the stories of culture and tradition were passed from one generation to another. So what happens under colonialism is when that chain is broken and if your narratives are oral, you lose your original stories and they are replaced by European stories. So that's why people like Chin Wezu and Ngugi Tiango insist that African novelists should also write in their own native language so that they can retain the stories that are being lost but also pass on those stories through written texts to their own people and that it's crucial for people to have their own stories. What Ngugi Chiango does, his original name which was given to him was James Ngugi because his parents had converted to Christianity. But in the 70s, Ngugi Chiango renounces his Christian name and takes a real Gikuyu name. And then he starts writing in Gikuyu one of the regional languages of Kenya and since then he has written all his plays and novels first in Gikuyu and then he translates them into English for an English reading audience so this is a big debate in African literary studies whether write in your own languages and what's the significance of that or to write in English and French and there are people for and against both of these and some people do both. So, what Chinwezu is arguing, going back to him, what he's suggesting is how do we retrieve? Remember, his stance is slightly purist if you've watched my video. The project is to retrieve some form of an unsullied African past, a purist African past. Now, if it is possible or not, that's besides the point. We can discuss it. And what he says is that. Here are two kinds of subjectivities that were created under colonialism. The Kalibans, who are the original inhabitants of Africa, and the Ariels, who are the Europeanized Africans, whose sensitivities, sympathies, and politics are still aligned with what used to be the mother countries. And these are the people who inherit these nation-states. They are the ones who are governors. They are the ones who are politicians. And people are still at the same level where they were under colonialism. So his solution is that we should, you know, uproot the rule of Ariel, who are compradors, who work for the Europeans anyway, and replace them with Africans. Then he goes on to give us a program of how to retrieve the African identity. So what he calls it an intellectual bloodbath, right? What he's saying is, let us first get rid of the residues of the Europeans. So get rid of their languages, their cultural norms, even their religions. And then also let us get rid of the Arab influences. Now remember, a lot of North and West African nations... The first foreign religion that comes there in a, in a powerful form was Islam, which reaches North Africa in ninth century, right? So a lot of these countries, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, even Nigeria, have huge, major, and in some cases, majority Muslim Arabized populations. Chinwezu sees that also as a form of colonialism. And what he wants to do is de-Arabize Africa, take away the influence of Arabic language or Islam, and take away the influence of European languages and European customs, and then retrieve an African identity that is informed by African cultures, African religions, African history. But there's a distinction that he makes in that. What he's saying is, we don't want to then become pre-modern, no, we retrieve those identities, strengthen them, but we do them within the contemporary industrial society. And he gives you the examples of just like the Japanese did, just like the Chinese did, retain their languages, retain their culture, but they developed their industrial infrastructure. So, in one way, they are modern. But of course, they are not necessarily American or British. They are Japanese. They are Chinese. So why can't the Africans do that? That is his quest in the essay that you read. Now, of course, why am I asking you to read these is obviously, first of all, to understand what kind of debates are happening in, within the context of post-colonial Africa, but also to realize that these debates are still prevalent around us in the world in which we live, in this America in which we live. So if you look at the world here, the way politicians speak, the way people speak, there is a nativist strain in our politics where people say, oh, so-and-so constitutes an American and -and so-and-so is not, but it mobilizes their worldview. It enables them to think what constitutes being American, right? And then there are other constituencies who say, well, no, our experiences are not universal. If you're African-American, if you're Asian-American, your experience is different. We need to know our history because our history is distinct. It is American history, but our experiences are different. And the more we know about them, the better we can be part of America. So these debates, you know, rage still over here, wherever we live, sometimes blatantly in the politics and sometimes in a latent form to wherever we live. So that's why it's important to read these carefully. I have another question. I'm a little confused as to how Chinwezu proposes to re-Africanize Africa. Is it similar to how Nagugi was suggesting more native African literature in order to have African Shakespeare's and other great authors? Good question. Well, it's uh, actually more radical than that. Now, when you, of course, read Ngugi carefully, what he's trying to do in that essay is creating space for creating something hybrid, where we can accommodate reading European literatures, but then writing our own, even if it is informed by European writings. Because what Angugi Chiango's point is that, look, we have already enriched Western literature. I mean, think of it. So many stories that you watch, that you read, are informed by the customs of Africa, customs of Kenya and all. So why can't we take what's in Europe and write our own stories and enrich them with that knowledge? Tell our own stories, but maybe use the genres and forms from there. But what Chinwezu is suggesting is more radical. What he's suggesting is is a cleansing, right? What he's saying is no, no half measures. If we want to retain an African civilization, create our own African identities, we must jettison the cultural influences of the West, their modes of thinking, their modes of telling a story and must reintroduce how we, Africans, culturally did that. That involves taking out any Western-authorized religion, mythologies, Arab religion, Arab mythologies, and then, after you have retrieved those knowledges, then see the word with that knowledge. Create your own identity with that knowledge, but still develop it In modernity, that's where he is. Don't define it in pre-modern terms. Use that knowledge, use the Western knowledge, but have your own cultural identity and then you can have your steel mills and your industries. That's the big difference between the two. Now also keep in mind that these purest forms of thinking the self or thinking a collective identity isn't just pertinent to Chinwezu. Anytime someone here mobilizes a politics that says uh, why can't we have one universal American culture they are usually defaulting on to dominant Caucasian culture and then they see any influence from non-European people from African Americans from Chicano and Chicana people Latino Latina people as an aberration as something that has corrupted the mainstream culture because they want to retain a purist history the movement is similar It's the same movement. And so in that sense, that's why I kind of think that Chinwezu's project is, is, you know, a little impractical. But think of it, it unleashes its politics. Those of you whose parents are from India, you can see that in the BJP politics. What are they promising? That India is a Hindu country. We are going to go and mobilize all the mythologies of Hinduism. And if we become purely more Hindu, we will be a better nation. So there are young people in Bombay running around, you know, uh, the foot soldiers of BJP, you know, who randomly would just enter a coffee house and start beating up people because, you know, boys and girls are sitting together having a coffee. And it's like, Hindu women don't do that. That is that politics, which has its consequences, is mobilized because of this idea of purity. How did the purists see immigrants or people who were not natively from the culture? Did they want them to switch to the native language? Well, I mean, that's the problem, is that if you are a cultural purist, Or religious purist, there is no room for anyone else to enter it. Let's say, okay, let's say if I'm a racist American who believes in the supremacy of Caucasian races and all, if that is my belief system and if I believe that America ought to be that, then there is no room in it. Because the identification is racial, then it doesn't leave any room for you, me, or anyone else to say, hey, I am, I am American enough, I vote, I believe in democracy, I believe in equal rights. There is no entry for you because the basis is either racist or regional. So same is the case if you look at the Hindu fundamentalists in India or for that matter, Muslim fundamentalists in ISIS is if you are a Shia, maybe if you convert to their side, you'll be welcome. But the chances are, if you are not from their sect, you're already a persona non-grata. So that is the problem with any kind of purist identity, because it then creates this other who is unassimilable right, or unacceptable to you do you think there is a division between the sunnis oh absolutely i mean depends like you know if you are middle of the road muslims you know not radicalized you just practice your religion then of course you can coexist and respect each other like so many millions of muslims do right in my own village you know half of our family is shia half of our family is sunni but they live in peace but if you are part of a radical organization like ISIS or Taliban, right? And if you absolutely believe the Shias are wrong, then, then your differences become irreconcilable, right? That is what ISIS's verdict was, if you've read my book, is that absolutely Shias were supposed to be, according to their logic, eliminated, right? They call them Rafideen, Right. The people who rejected the faith. So, depending on where you are in the spectrum, will be your response to if you're a Sunni to Shia, or if you're an extreme Shiite person, your response to Sunnis. But I've never seen the corresponding politics from Shias. I mean, there, there are no Shia groups who basically go out and say we, we have to eliminate the Sunnis. It's only in the Sunni Wahhabi sects that you see that. Okay, Chinwezu said the colonized mind like a well-conditioned slave is incapable of initiative independent of its master. Which makes sense and it explains why he came to the conclusion of cultural purism. In the current structure of society, will Africa and its individual nations be able to develop an entirely decolonized identity or is that just a permanent effect? Of- Good question. So that leads me to another term that is increasingly being theorized and discussed, and that is decolonialism or decolonization. And it's a very complex term, and the biggest scholars who theorized it and talked about it first is Walter Minvolo. He teaches at Duke. But the idea is that here is the dilemma of colonialism, and you will see that as you read, is that even after the colonizers leave physically, we still live in a world where they still own the global economy. Their corporations instead of governments still do whatever they want to do in African countries. They still control the world economic policy and how the global economy works. So within that system of power, then majority of post-colonial nation states still play that kind of a subservient role. Now, there are different ways in which nations of the world have tried to counter that. One is when there were two powers in the world, Soviet Union and United States, they will either align themselves with Soviet Union in opposition to capitalism. That's no longer possible. Now, increasingly, they try to build regional alliances. But by and large, the global economy is still lopsided. And it is run by the multinational corporations who are mostly and primarily housed either in North Atlantic regions or now maybe in China and Japan. But what is also developed alongside of it is a global culture, culture of materialism, culture of acquisition. So where that kind of purism or or retrieval of your own culture could be useful, is not necessarily as a bulwark against capitalism and multinationals. That's probably too big a fight, right? But where it could be useful is in mobilizing certain cultural practices that at least enable people to live meaningful, compassionate lives. So how, for example? Let's say if you live in Pakistan or India, if we absolutely became capitalistic and started believing in nuclear family and that, you know, you pull yourself up with your bootstraps and all, then you will create a culture in a country which doesn't have the safety nest, it doesn't have the insurance system or the healthcare system in which millions of people would starve or would get hurt. So how does culture then help is by me saying or the leaders saying, hey, look okay, fine, we do our jobs, we work for factories, we are under the power of global capitalism. But in our culture, we take care of our parents. We take care of our poor neighbors. That's how we have done it for centuries, right? We take care of our neighbors. We share whatever wealth you have. Those are the values of native cultures that you can then mobilize to create a community which can withstand the ravages and the intrusion of this materialistic global culture, right? So, in that sense, then full decolonization may not be possible, but it it is still po- possible to mobilize a culture and a politics that is more enabling and more attuned to the particularities of where you are. Now, when you go to decolonization, what the theorist of decolonialism suggests is to develop a new mode of philosophical thinking so if you look at the western mode of thinking the reason the kind of reason that mobilizes it what we call the instrumental logic so the instrumental logic is a kind of logic which looks at the world from the point of view of how can i instrumentalize it for profit so technically speaking anytime an instrumentalist looks at a big tree they don't see a beautiful tree, they see a tree that they can make into boards and then those boards become, you know, planks for a table that they can sell. So what people like Walter menolo and others say is, okay, are there other modes of thinking the world, other cosmologies? So if you go to South America to the native cultures, how did they imagine the world? Was it instrumental? Or did they think of the world as a place in which everyone must live in harmony? What were their ideas of property rights? Did people own property or was property owned by everyone else? How did they see nature? Did they see it as a threat that must be tamed? Or did they see it something like a mother figure with whom they live in harmony? So that's decolonizing thought, taking it away from this instrumental logic And then developing those cosmologies to a point where we start thinking of the world in those terms. So it's a strategic mode. But ultimately, if more people think of the world in that way, in those cosmologies, maybe then we can use that as a prop against the march of instrumental logic or instrumental reason that mobilizes capital and all. So that's another subtle form of decolonial thinking. I'm on the fence about that because the thing is, if you go into purist cosmologies, which are counter modern, it depends on which cosmology are you mobilizing. If you go to Islam, fine, there are wonderful things about Islam that you can mobilize. But if you convince yourself that you can solve all your problems by making your Islamic thought purist and purist and purist, eventually you will end up limiting what you do and you will reinscribe people into pre modern hierarchies. Same is happening to Dharma philosophy in India. The idea is that if we become more Hindu, we will become a better India, right? But if you go into Dharma, the deeper you go into it, right, it has its own inequalities, it has its own problems, which are pre modern, right? And if you start imposing them, chances are you will silence a big community, you will ostracize another community. So those problems are there. That is why the people I follow in post-colonial studies, like people like Homi Baba, Gayatri Spivak, Edward Said, all of these people rather invest in more hybrid systems. And what that means is take the best of this culture best of that culture, best of native cultures, and cobble together a way of living and thinking that incorporates the best from every part. And that, to me, is more palatable. Okay, good questions, though. So do you think that such decolonizing thought is possible in a day and age where everyone and everything is connected. that's the point is that the idea isn't that we should go and think these decolonial thoughts in the silos in which we live the idea is to juxtapose that against the dominant thought to change the dominant thought itself so that's a very noble move and If you look at Latin America, where most of these things have become part of the politics, the environmental movement is doing that. Declaring Mother Earth as a sovereign subject and giving it the rights equal to humans was one step like that. So there are practical implications of that. But the idea is to say the way you think the word, let's say America or Wall Street, is not natural. And it's not the only way to live in the world. Here, we have an alternative for you. If you incorporate some of these thoughts, maybe we can bring together a world which is more in sync with how we ought to live. So that's the idea behind these. But in any way, in my opinion, any system that will emerge will have to be a hybrid system. It can't be this or that. It will have to be best of this, best of this and best of that and making them together. If you have ever visited Japan, I visited about 20 years ago. I lived there. I saw them doing it. I mean, Japan is one of the most industrialized and capitalistic nations in the world. But they have retained a lot of things from the traditional Japanese culture. And what is it? Integrity, honor, not making a quick buck, telling you exactly what is wrong with the thing that they are trying to sell. Japan was the only country, and I think still the only country, where if you went to buy a car, a used car, they won't tell you, hey, this is the best. They will actually point out to you, here, these are the things that were wrong with it, we have fixed them, But it might develop these, these problems. That's why the price is this. If I don't know if you ever go to Akihabara next to Tokyo. It's a huge, huge area where you can buy any kind of electronics. But in Akihabara, if you went there, there'll be three different, let's say, laptops with three different prices. And if you ask them why the prices were different, they will tell you, this one has this mistake, this one has this. So they had combined a sense of honor because I'm selling you a product I need to be honorable and you know modern capitalism so these are some of the examples where it can be done right and then socialistic capital already does that right any form of purist retrieval is not possible because all we have is the tools of today to retrieve it and then the politics of today will also have an impact on that right so even if we claim that this is purist that purity is created by us as a myth, right? Who knows how did people live 600 years ago? What was the original form of Islam? What was the original form of Hinduism? If we are doing it, we are taking the tools of today and deciphering a past and then reconstructing it, right? But the idea is what Chinwezu, where I agree with him, is that a total loss of culture leaves you kind of blank So if you can retrieve some of the stories so that people stay in touch, this is Africa, these used to be our gods, these used to be the things we worshipped and revered. That part I agree with, that they should have a cultural identity. If you look at colonial nations, post-colonial nations, those that did have written scripts were able to tackle post-colonial phases better because they could revert back to their own Vedas and the Quran and other, and their own writers, their own written traditions, right? The problem in Africa was that majority of African languages were oral. And if you destroy an oral tradition, which you can do so in about 75 years, because if one generation dies and the second one is not taught the stories of their ancestors, the third one will lose it. That's why these writers from Africa constantly insist on creating narratives that are Majority of independence movements were left-leaning because they had more revolutionary thought, right? Uh, but it can also be culturalist. You know, you if you are let's say from Peru, from Paraguay, or from South America, you could also be retrieving your own cultural native ways of dealing with money, dealing with wealth. And so it can be informed by a Marxist socialist way of looking at life, but it can also be totally dependent on your own culture and and how you view property, how you view commodities, but also capital and money. So it's not necessarily always left leftists. The instrumental capitalism that we have developed over here believes that we have to conquer nature and reshape it. Whereas the Japanese have merged that idea that you live with nature, right? You, sh- you reshape it, but without tempering too much against it. So maybe that's something we can learn from them, right? Or I don't know. I mean, these used to be like if you go to my village, I don't know how many of you have ever visited India or another country. My village, I come from a rural part of Pakistan and most people are, you know, sustenance farmers. They have small land holdings. But I I was thinking like when we were growing up, I mean, our parents had moved to the city. What an average farmer would do, they will have a few farm animals, right? A cow a water buffalo and a few goats, right? And each of them had some land and then there will be land which was called collective land for the whole village. So every evening, you know, a farmer will go and cut a few branches, trim a few branches of a tree. We have this tree called pulai, which the goats and sheep love to eat. They will never cut down a full tree. They'll trim the branches and they'll bring that home. The goats and sheep will eat it, then they will throw it on the wood pile where it will dry and it would become firewood for their cooking fires. Right? So these people were doing sustainable living without cutting down the forest hundreds of years before we in the West came up with the idea, right? So maybe retrieving some of those practices and habits. Because now when I go to my village, the trees are less and less People are using shopping bags and they have the same habits that we are trying to get rid of over here. So maybe something like that would be sort of a decolonial way of living. The idea is that not go into the developing world thinking that we need to teach them something, but rather go there thinking they can teach us something too. That would be an important way of looking at it. So this concludes this edited version of a live lecture. I'll be back with more. Please keep an eye out for these, and I hope these are useful to you. Thank you so much, and as always, peace and love.